difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Genevieve Kosky. Scott Tobias. And Tasha Robinson. On the first half of this episode, we discussed Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca, the 1940 film that brought him to America, earned a Best Picture Oscar, began a difficult relationship with David O. Selznick, and assured that any movies with creepy maids would forever be compared to it. In this episode, we'll turn our attention to Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, which doesn't have a creepy maid, but it does have a Mrs. Danvers-like figure in the form of Leslie Manville's Cyril Woodcock, sister of its central character, Reynolds Woodcock. In fact, Anderson has freely cited Rebecca as a direct influence on Phantom Thread, suggesting to Entertainment Weekly that he would be next in the line of directors who tried and failed, his words, to make their own version of the movie. Yet, for all their connections, which we'll get into shortly, Phantom Thread is very much its own movie, and very much the unmistakable work of Paul Thomas Anderson. Power struggles, in one form or another, have been central to many of Anderson's films. And here the interest gets channeled into a story that finds the unexpected middle ground between The Master and Punch Drunk Love. It's a love story that takes more than a few unexpected turns, and one fraught with a hard-to-define tension. In a recent Q&A on Reddit, Anderson answered a question about depicting romantic love with a reference to, yes, Alfred Hitchcock, responding, quote, I think Hitchcock had a good idea. He said, shoot love scenes like murder scenes and murder scenes like love scenes. Maybe he felt that falling in love was scary as shit. I think we've all felt that way. By that logic, there are a lot of murder scenes in Phantom Thread, even if it's not clear who's killing whom. We meet Reynolds Woodcock, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, the highly successful and extremely particular dress designer, as he's in the process of discarding, with the help of his sister Cyril, played by Leslie Manville, the latest in what seems to be a series of lovers and muses. He soon finds another in Alma, played by Vicky Creeps, a waitress of unknown origin with no apparent attachments and eventually no apparent interest beyond keeping Reynolds happy. But it's not that simple. Trying to change the unspoken terms of the relationship leads to potential disaster. Instead, she discovers that if she also doesn't want to end up on a list of former inspirations, she's going to have to take more radical steps. But, as Alma and Reynolds circle one another, sometimes drawing each other closer, other times pushing each other away, Anderson keeps her actions and her motives unclear, never fully lifting the veil on either until the film's final moments. Her arrival has cast a very long shadow. She's barely looked at you this evening, has she? May I warn you of something? My brother can feel cursed. That love is doomed for him. I don't like the fabric. Maybe one day you'll change your taste. Maybe I like my own taste. Just enough to get you into trouble. Perhaps I'm looking for trouble. Stop! There is an air of quiet death in this house. You're not cursed. You're loved by me. Stop playing this game. What game? What precisely is the nature of my game? All your rules and your clothes and all this money and everything is a game. This was an ambush. Stop. Are you sent here to ruin my evening and possibly my entire life? Stop it! Whatever you do, do it carefully. So, what did everyone think of The Phantom Thread? I think we kind of spoilered people on that last week when we talked about our top films of the year. Yeah, it was sure. my number two of the year. Mm-hmm. It was Scott's number one. It was both one? of ours number one, but yeah. the, but this was the mystery person. <laughs> so we, I think it's Genevieve. Oh. You hadn't even that. seen it yet, no, had you? No, no, I have seen it. And I really wish I had been able to see it a second time before this uh, discussion because it's been a couple of days and I'm still 
working out my feelings. I was not immediately over the moon for this film. I'm sorry, guys. Um, it's but okay. I, but it's not okay. <laughs> you guaranteed me it would be my favorite, Tasha. I actually I know. <laughs> deliberately went out of my way to not set your expectations too high. I didn't want to ladybird you, having yeah. uh, knowing that you'd already been told this is going to be your favorite movie of the year on that one. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I did not hate it. I didn't even dislike it. And I definitely had the sensation that at least one of you discussed of just being like very swept up in this film from the moment it began. I loved watching this film. I love the experience of looking at this film. I'm still puzzling over whether its approach, which I think is like exacting and well executed, works for me personally. There's this very purposeful back and forth between being alluring and withholding in this film. And that's, like I said, absolutely intentional. It's a reflection of Woodcock and their relationship. But that kind of push and pull tension made it really difficult for me to like love this movie or to see love in it. It feels a little sterile for for my liking, both in terms of a love story and in a terms of a story about fashion, which is something else that I kind of had a slight problem with while still enjoying in the moment. But well, when you said the word sterile, Scott made a face that makes me think we should probably go to Scott for his reaction. No, I, it's fine. I, I mean, sterile is maybe not exactly the right word, but it's it's, it's precise to the point of airlessness. Um, well, oh, that was even now, worse. Now, when you said the word airlessness, Scott made a face. So I think we should probably go to him. a much bigger face, too. Well, wait, wait, let me see if I can make it even worse. Oh, please, please. You're, you're killing me. You're killing me. Well, I mean, I've seen it. I have had the benefit of seeing it twice. I mean, I, I was held quite rapidly. And just to back up, this, yes. this is a difficult film in a lot of ways. And, you know, now you're making a face at me. Yeah. But I mean, it, it is a... You know, Nobody har- likes this film in the right way for Scott. No. Scott, this was the worst movie of the year. No. Nobody it's, should like this it's movie. It's a complex film is what I'm saying. And, you know, I'm leading this discussion. I've only seen it once. I'd love to have a chance to see it a second time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to see it a second time this weekend. But uh, there's a lot to sort through is what I'm saying. I went back and saw it last night again in 70 millimeter. Oh my at, God, did, uh, I, the did, music did I just miss you? Oh, were we in the same theater? What, when did you see it? The 945. Yeah, we were in the same theater. Are kidding me? That's amazing. I can't believe we saw we saw the same show. Yeah, I had to go back and rewatch it because I I had to know how it would play differently the second time. I just love this movie so much. In the second time, I just think there's something with all of Anderson's films, you know, because you're thinking looking for unifying threads because they're all so different. They a lot of them taking place in different time periods, different types of characters. They all have a kind of a different feel to them, but at their core, there's just something so raw and childlike almost in in base about the emotions that play which is why the word airless made me kind of cringe a little bit just because i, I think that I was think, a full body cringe no, it wasn't because <laughs> there it was, was just, nothing was airless or sterile about that cringe <laughs> because there's, just, there's, All a, there's a hurt at the center of this movie and in a weird way the second viewing brought it out for me a little bit more because i had just seen rebecca and i think because i think the relationship between phantom thread and rebecca is a true conversation in a way that i really that really makes this podcast you know kind of exciting for me because there's so many analogs between the two but the insight that i had into phantom thread was that the rebecca of phantom thread is his mom Mm -hmm. in that pain in that presence the the invisible presence that she has over him at all times and that alma is trying to 
break through and access and heal to some extent this wound that follows him that's where the emotion of the film really kind of came forth for me in a second viewing beyond just being utterly you know enwrapped with the filmmaking which is so spectacular in every possible regard so you're looking at me askance i am not looking at you askance i'm just thinking i think it's fascinating how these two films talk to each other i think it's amazing the degree to which he has remade rebecca without remaking rebecca Mm -hmm. like by making his own movie in just such a a distinctive way and we can get into that more specifically in connections For me, Phantom Thread played very, very differently the second time. Like the first time, I think within the first five minutes of it, uh, like I had managed to go into this movie having forgotten who was in it and knowing literally nothing about the plot. And I think within the first five minutes, I just had this feeling of I'm in the hands of a master. Like he knows what he's doing and I don't know where this is going, but it's going to be fascinating. And then every beat was unexpected for me. I, I can point to at least three different points during the film where I thought, oh, okay, I see where this is going and it's going to be a letdown. Oh, that wasn't it at all. And there are a few things I enjoy in a film more than surprise. You know, not uh, not a, a jump cut of a cat leaping out when you're expecting an alien, but that full-bodied, unexpected, you can see where this is going, and that is not the intention at all. And in part, that was what I loved about the film the first time through. And it goes right up to the last scene. Mm-hmm. The second time watching it, of course, I couldn't have that experience again. The experience I had instead was just studying the intentionality of every line. This is a meticulous crafted screenplay where every scene and every line means something very important. It's very slowly building a a tightly pieced together wall and there is nothing wasted. And I didn't feel anything like the emotional connection the second time through, but I came out really impressed with the craft. That's that's interesting because the way you describe watching it the second time is much more aligned with how I watched it the first time because I was preparing for this podcast Mm. and because I was thinking about it in terms of Anderson as a filmmaker and like the things that we would be discussing. And I I was actively analyzing every line and image to the extent that you can while watching a movie and trying to remain in the moment. And I think that's what I mean when I say like while being very swept up in and taken with the craft and execution, I just had trouble accessing the emotional core of this movie. Not because I I don't believe it's there. Like I I think you are absolutely right, Scott, in terms of the the mother figure being a key to unlocking their relationship. Like I understand all that intellectually, but there's just such a focus on precision and detail and execution that it overshadows that emotional component for me. And that's, to be honest, that's something that happens a lot for me with P.T. Anderson. Like he's one of those filmmakers I've just never been able to really engage with to the extent I feel other people do. So it may be a personal tastes thing that's happening here. But that said, I mean, I really liked looking at this movie. I really liked watching this movie. I want to see it a second time. I want to reevaluate my reactions to it. I want to interrogate my reactions to it again, you know, and I want to discuss it with you guys. <laughs> I just, I don't think it's surprising that you'd experience trouble accessing the emotions given that our three main characters are all people who withhold their emotions right. at all times, who rigidly control them, who only let out the smallest fragments of things. It's not an emotional movie in that way. And I can certainly see having a reaction to that. That said, I, 
I very often been in the same boat as you with Paul Thomas Anderson, it, with just a feeling of I'm not connecting with this movie. Like I understand what it's doing and it's interesting, but I very rarely connect with his movies. And this was an exception for me. I just think he understands so much about the essence of drama. I think we, we talked about that William H. Macy interview and about the nature of acting, about people what, you know, trying to get something from somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. And that back and forth. And you think about that dynamic between that push and pull between Reynolds and Alma, right? And how they're locked in this battle of wills where they really are trying to have a relationship on their terms and trying to force certain terms on each other in order to find some kind of reconciliation. And they only find it you know, at the very end of the film, and when they do, it's such a pleasure to watch. I mean, that scene, I mean, to have the, the nerve to not resolve this thing until the very end of the movie. I mean, to, when, when she's making that omelet for him, and he gets it, and he understands what's being done, and she subjects him to a, a staring contest, which he has warned him much earlier that he will always lose, to have that point be the point of reconciliation is pretty amazing. I guess that's, that's sort of a there, there will be blood thing, too, where it, it kind of goes to that very end point before it really kind of nails it down. But the and nerviness the of that too. was something. Yeah. The master, too. Yeah. I, I think that one of the things that a lot of Anderson's films have in common, and I think I would have to go back and rewatch some of the first movies of his that I saw to see if this extends through all of them. But I think the kind of push and pull we see here of two people who need need each other in a very specific way and are perpetually angry with each other because they're not being given the thing they need in return is very common to all of the the Anderson films that I know reasonably well. But I found myself, you know, as a credit role, thinking this is closest in some ways to Punch Drunk Love. I mean, Mm -hmm. it is a love story and it's about two people who are damaged in such a way but that they may not be right for anyone except for each other and maybe not even that but yet maybe they can maybe they can work it out and i and i think they both end on a, on the same hopeful note it's uh it's odd because you know i don't think superficially they have very much in common but i think they're kind of in some ways telling the same story and i, I think that's also looking big picture i think that's the point where Anderson starts making what we now see as Paul Thomas Anderson movies. As much as I love Heart Eight and Boogie Nights, which I can watch any day of the week, and Magnolia I really like a lot too. You know, I think before he's kind of like doing this sort of incredible synthesis of his of his greatest influences, and then you know, I think he just figures out a whole different thing to do with Punch Drunk Love, and he's been doing it ever since. I feel like with Boogie Nights, there's some of that dynamic going on, like in microcosm in some of the relationships. Mm. It's just not the overall theme of the film, unless you think of uh, <laughs> I'm just going to call him Marky Mark, unless <laughs> you think of him and the adult film industry as needing each other and not being entirely capable of getting what they want from each other until the very end. But I, I think you see yeah, just sort of that aspect of it in, in smaller cases, in specific relationships within the movie. And he just gradually expanded that relationship to be the entire movie in There Will Be Blood and The Master in here. Yeah, I mean, his, his films from Punch Drunk Love on, you couldn't examine them and say, well, that's, that's a little Scorsese there, a little Altman there maybe a little, little demi too uh they became his movies in just more and more sophisticated in terms of style i mean my favorite paul thomas anderson films are all pretty recent uh this this one and the master and um and there nice. will be blood oh. uh, but uh they're all i mean they're all great but uh, i i just uh i i think he's become a much more sophisticated filmmaker and writer too i, I that was another th- thought i had leaving the theater that you were in 
last night <laughs> and walking home. It's a very was like, big theater. Was, it is a very big theater, right? And I was there. I was there pretty early, but um, th- weirdly thinking that a late show on a Monday night in a seven hundred seat house would somehow sell out. Um, <laughs> this is the way I think. So it was surprisingly well occupied, though, for yeah. a Monday. Uh, you know, with the the ambient temperature being ten below. Yeah, that is true. But um, I was pretty pretty uh, pleased with how packed that house was. Yeah, I mean, I think when they show things in seventy millimeter, I think that that's a big draw for people. But we may um, as well just say we're talking about the music box here in Chicago. Yes, we are. Probably collectively our favorite theater. It's, it's, it's a good yes. place. I Absolutely. also saw the seventy millimeter there the day before you too. I've seen it this weekend. But in any case, my thought walking home was like, is there somebody? Is there a writer director who is as skilled in both roles right now as Paul Thomas Anderson? Because you can always you can think a lot a lot of directors who also write their scripts where the scripts almost feel like an architecture of what they're going to be able to do with the camera. I mean, like when Brian De Palma writes a script. You know, the script itself is not some masterpiece, but it's kind of providing him this opportunity to do the set pieces that he wants to do. He's thinking about what he's going to do with the camera. But like the writing here is so sophisticated on its own. And of course, you can't separate it from what he ends up doing from a filmmaking level. But man, it's just he's so good. He's gotten to be such a better writer. I mean, this is like such a better script than like Magnolia, which is just all raw and almost kind of shrill this has all of those emotions but expressed in a much more refined way and sophisticated way and he's just got he gets better with every movie it seems you know uh i off the top of my head there are a handful of writer directors who i think are fantastic and who i would put up there mm-hmm. but my mind is not uh, good at random access coming up with stuff like that this <laughs> is something i would love to hear from our listeners mm-hmm. on but i also don't want to derail too much because there's so much yeah, specific sorry. that we want to talk about in terms mm-hmm. of phantom thread and above all like before we get into connections i just I kind of want to focus on how these characters are constructed. You know, my big complaint with uh, Rebecca was the overall construction of the story. Here, the construction of the story is so important because of the way these characters unfold over time and because of the performances we get. I think the thing that surprised me most about the film was perpetually thinking I knew what was up with Alma and then discovering that I didn't just beat for beat for beat as she kept resisting all of these easy little stereotypes she could have fit into in terms of how women characters in period films so often work. I kept thinking that I knew what was going on with Cyril and she kept surprising me. Mm -hmm. Um, Woodcock, I feel like maybe was a little more kind of predictable in his patterns because that is what his character is, is a set of predictable patterns that gets incredibly upset when it's, when it's disrupted. But the shape of the characters here, I was just so fascinated by how unexpected they were. Yeah, I keep getting stuck in terms of Alma on the fact that in a movie that is about a woman finding ways to express her own agency in a relationship, we get so little information about that woman's life outside of this relationship before or during it. And like, I understand that a film needs a focus and can't tell us everything. But I really do think it's kind of a detriment to this character who is presented like a blank slate that suddenly isn't so blank. And that's part of the mystery. It's intended as a revelation. But there's an organic human quality lacking in that revelation that makes her and I think ultimately their relationship feel more like a contrivance to me, um, which is where some of my problems with the emotional core of this movie is coming from. 
I should say that Creeps, I think, does a remarkable job imbuing that character with depth and uh, authenticity that, like, may be on the page, you know? Anderson may have written a lot more than the dialogue around that character, but I think it comes through in the performance more than in the dialogue, for sure. You know, her lack of background, her lack of apparent family or friends or a story bothered me a bit the first time around. But I'm going to draw on something uh, really intelligent and insightful that uh, a friend of mine named Scott Tobias said uh, about 30 minutes ago, which is I think that her lack of background here is the equivalent of the main character's lack of background in Rebecca. Mm -hmm. I, I think that what he's communicating here is that in a way she doesn't have an identity until she enters this relationship. And that might be horrifying in some yeah. movies. I We've certainly all seen movies where the, the female lead does not have any kind of story of her own apart from the relationship she's in. Here, it's because she enters this relationship and immediately creates it on her own terms and then sinks her teeth in and will not let go until it takes the shape she wants it to take. I feel like her lack of background is just emphasizing the degree to which she has now become this relationship. It's a canny bit of casting, too, because it's an actress who brings no baggage with mm -hmm. her. I mean, she's done some films in Europe. She's did Hannah, I think, is the only film that got any kind of play over here. She's from Luxembourg. So the accent is, you know, it sounds continental, but a little unplaceable at the same time. It's just a, a real find for this role. And she's, like Tommy Wiseau. She's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> just like Tommy Wiseau. Now it's time for she's connections when we draw connections between this film and The Room. Um, yeah, what a find. I'm, lo I'm looking forward to seeing her in more stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many. The connections between this and Rebecca are, are strong and something that, that obviously we have a whole segment to, to get into. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I mean, there'll be a couple points of comparison. I mean, one, I think that she's she's more, you know, sort of impudent and, and rebellious from the start than Joan Fontaine ends up being, oh, yeah. for sure. The other key point, I think, is that she really does want to be part of this world. Like, in, but why? Because it's because, because it, I mean, they're, because they're creating beautiful things. I mean, it is an exciting, you know, the world of fashion is a creatively, you know, exciting place and i think that she sees possibility in that world and she sees possibility in him and she is going to fight for her place in that world and for him to be the type of person that she needs him to be which is you know somebody who can needs to settle down <laughs> every once in a while and be able to recognize her and bend a little bit i think she really does like the world in which he introduces her and if she didn't she she wouldn't continue within it i think that the two of them that something passes between them when they first see each other and it's a recognition and just from that moment on i mean they they look at each other she she sort of trips she looks up they make eye contact they both smile and from then on they have an understanding and the fact that as the movie unfolds, it becomes clear that they've each completely misunderstood the other, I think is really radical and, and exciting because that kind of, you know, eyes meet eyes and now we're in love kind of thing is such a movie shorthand for we want to get to the romance. We want to get to the longing. It happens, especially in musicals. Well, off the top of my head, things like Les Mis and, and Sweeney Todd come to mind where you have an ingenue pair that's outside 
inside the rest of the story. And it's just it's necessary to shorthand. They take one look at each other and they're in love. Here they take one look at each other and it is understood that they're going to go to dinner together. They're probably going to have a relationship and they each think they know what terms that's going to be on. And the fact that they're both so dramatically wrong and need to spend the rest of the movie reconciling what that relationship is, is like a repudiation of every fairy tale happily ever after ever. And I, I just find it tremendously exciting. Tasha, is it fair to say that maybe the whole movie is them circling back to that moment, like finding what that moment, redefining what that moment was and having another exchange of glances that, that lets them move forward? I can see that. Over and a having, meal. Over a meal. Over a meal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, over food that she brings him. And also, and also the, 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 the callback to the line about him losing, if they get in a staring contest, that he'll lose every time, or she'll win every time, or I can't remember the line specifically, which of course sets up the very end of the film and what, where she is able to make clear her intention and he is able to accept it with a kind of a, a smile, you know, as she poisons him. I think it's so fascinating that that line gets paralleled when Cyril tells him, don't pick a fight with me, you will not come out alive. And it's, <laughs> it's the exact same message to him. And I think she's just as right. But it's interesting because it comes so from left field. It's within what you understand about her character. It doesn't fit the Rebecca pattern. So what an unbelievably great character Cyril is. <laughs> we haven't gotten into connections yet. But that difference between her and Mrs. Danvers is that there is a standard that she is setting here. And she is she's protecting her brother. She's part of the house and it, all of its... Uh, regimented ways but there's a point at which Alma passes a test for Cyril and Cyril's not going to just get rid of her like everybody else and suddenly and she warm you know there's a warming that happens that's different in this film than it is in Rebecca and gives a kind of a, an extra layer of real emotional depth to the Cyril character who's also so good at just cutting people down. If I have any gripe with Phantom Thread, it's that by the end, I wanted to know a little more about Cyril, mm -hmm. about why... She disappears a little. At the yeah, end. she does. She very much uh, has to disappear for the central romance to continue. But sort of our last glimpse of her is in this very defanged way in a fantasy. And I just, I can't help but wonder kind of where she went as a character. And that does parallel the way Rebecca drops out its three most interesting characters to focus on what a boat maker and a doctor and a, a policeman have to say. But at the same time, by the end, I felt like I knew like everything about Reynolds, about what was important to him, what he wanted and what he was capable of letting go, what Alma wanted and what she was capable of doing to get there. And I felt like as the story went on, I knew less and less about what motivated Cyril because she bends in some very specific ways. But that ended up making me wonder in what other ways can she bend? Like, who is she ultimately? It's such a good performance and it's such a a thrill every time she's on screen. Mm. But by the end, I, I, just, I really wanted just a, a little bit more of, all right, so who is she at her heart? To me, it's one of those things where the film is about what it's about and she has her role, a supporting role and, and, not, a, and not a lead role. In that. And I was satisfied with whatever role she played in the, in the movie and her destiny beyond that is is not really at issue with her, the movie. Her, her destiny is exiled to the same realm as Alma's background. 
doesn't matter. It's not part of the story. No, not, <laughs> sir, not appearing in this film. I think it is possible to want something from a film that would not necessarily make it a better story. I think mm-hmm. it is possible to want to know more about her without necessarily thinking it belongs in the film or yeah, would no, the film. No, that's true. I mean, she's a great character. Well, with that, we'll wind down our discussion of Phantom Thread by itself, although I feel like we, it's so hard to talk about one film without talking about the other, but we'll formally address the connections between Rebecca and Phantom Thread after the break. I'm just waiting around like an idiot for you. This was an ambush, Alma. To what purpose? This is not... I know it's not going as I expected. I I didn't mean these things to come out. I'm sorry, but it was meant to be nice. Well, what did you expect? I wanted time with you. I wanted to have you to myself. You have me all the time. No. What are you talking about? I don't. there, There are always people around... And if not, then there's something between us. Something between us? Yes. What? Some... What? Distance. When did this happen? What happened to make you behave like this? Is it because you think I don't need you? Yes. I don't. Well, that's very predictable. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together at last and talk about all the things they have in common. Um, all the things. All the, all the so things. So many of the things. We talked about some of the things now. All the things. Why don't we start with the character analogs, which we've already started with, but uh, Scott conveniently drew up all the analogs uh, for us here. We're all all our agree- agreement on this, right? Yeah, sure. It's the second Mrs. DeWinter and, and Alma, uh, Maxim and Reynolds, Mrs. Danvers and Cyril, and... Scott suggests Rebecca and Woodcock's mother. That's some pretty direct connections. And how about that scene with his mother in the dress standing there at the go- uh, as, on as his sick ghost, bed as a ghost while he's yeah. on his sick bed? I really like in that moment the way the filmmaking reflects the shift in point of view because as Alma walks across the frame, like we, we see through Woodcock's vantage point, the two of them like side by side and mm-hmm. the assumption of this role by Alma, you know, but then as Alma passes back the other way, she disappears. And like now we're in Alma's point of view. And it's just, it's one of those little things that Anderson does that makes him really good. <laughs> yeah. It's bold. It's just, it's so bold to do all that stuff. And that's different from Rebecca. Rebecca is an unseen presence in the movie. And this, we get this one moment where this presence, this ghost makes an appearance in a scene. And, and, um, I think to great effect. The one place where the analog kind of breaks down is in Cyril slash Mrs. Danvers relationship to Rebecca slash Woodcock's mother. Mm. Like I don't, I mean, I guess that Cyril is her daughter mm-hmm. you know but there's not the obsessive elements that you get with mrs danvers but there's and a sense that she's trying to carry on the wishes of, of the person who's not there as well and to look out for the, the house in a sense it's not it's not yeah it's not, it, it does break down a little bit but I, th- I think there's still a little bit of it there i'm going to push back on the phraseology breaks down a little bit because i think the differences between these two movies are very deliberate mm-hmm. and are really strengthening the story more than breaking it down. I I don't think a direct one-to-one correspondence would be a positive thing here. Well, that's why I say the analog breaks down there, not the characters themselves. 
But so if the mother is Rebecca, is what Alma does to Reynolds, is that burning down Manderley? Like every time she does something to destroy his body, is she burning down this thing that he has such an attachment to that he keeps wanting to go back to? Well, the body gets better. Yeah, uh, I mean, but, <laughs> the spirit. She wants yeah. him to. She wants him to slow down a little bit and see her and be and be tender with her and not be so caught up in his way of doing things. It's just her way of rattling the cage a little bit. Sure, uh, but I mean, Maxim is uh, t- both attached to Manderley and has been poisoned by it. Like mm-hmm. he, he loves this place. It is where he was born and raised. It is a, this thing that he was attached to. And I think in the same way, Reynolds. All of Reynolds' habits, all of his things that he has surrounded himself with, his like innate understanding of his control of the universe, like that is his house. His breakfast habits are his house. His pride in the house of Woodcock is his house. And she she burns it to the ground and he recovers. And so she burns it to the ground again. But can we actually say, though, that the house is already starting to fall apart a little bit, that his whole... Which one? The House of Woodcock, okay. in the in the sense that that chic. What right, is this chic, word? Exactly. Oh, yeah. Anyone who so, uses it should be spanked. So good that the the, the chic speech, um, but oh, spanked um, publicly. And then and then another person who he'd served for a long time, going to another designer. I mean, this this happens. It's very hard to stay on top in the fashion world, right? I mean, it it, it, it fashion changes. Also, it's That's why it's fashion. Is it cyclical as well as well as yeah. it changes? But in any case, it's very hard to keep up. And if you're if you're Reynolds Woodcock and you're in this hermetic environment, maybe you're not as in tune with. Um, the way things are changing and maybe the world changes beyond how you can control or persuade with your art, right? So in a, in a sense, they, that's already falling apart. Uh, she she doesn't necessarily have to play a role in, or, or I don't even think she's interested in playing a role in destroying that. I think she wants him to be strong and wants him to be as creatively exciting as and dynamic as he is, I think. But I think she has needs that she wants him to meet as well and there are habits of his that he needs to break and she breaks them down. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. She breaks them down by burning down his house. I don't think she literally burns down the house of Woodcock, which she seems to take a, a very personal attachment and mm-hmm. pride in, given the whole business with the, the woman, the woman who shall no longer be dressed <laughs> by the house of Woodcock. I'm just saying that he... <laughs> He's built up this armor of the way things are, and she has to destroy it in order to get to the man that she wants. And I feel like the same thing happens. I mean, she's she's not the one that burns down the house. But given how many horrible memories are in Manderley for Maxim, it seems like it's almost a necessary thing. I think that uh, we we haven't really talked enough about Maxim himself and considering him in conjunction with Reynolds makes it much more interesting because they're both such petty tyrants. Mm-hmm. Like they're both strong and sensitive men and they're both capable of being sweet and romantic in their ways. They both seem to have certain things that they're talented at. But the movies, both of these movies kind of hold them in contempt. You know, Maxim is just some, sometimes a brat and sometimes a bully who who has a very short temper and really talks down to his wife and Reynolds is somebody who can't deal with toast buttering in the morning. Petulant, how petulant is the word I think that, that links the two of them. Very, very good point. Yeah. I, and I just, I think that the, the variations on them, Reynolds as he's a petulant tyrant, but he is creating beautiful things that are important to him. Whereas Maxim is a petulant tyrant because he's haunted by this woman that he sort of semi-killed to the degree that the code would let him. 
they they seem to be different qualities of product that express themselves in very much the same way. I want to ask you all a question, though, which is we all have significant others in this room. How bothered are you by them doing stuff around you while you're trying to work? <laughs> I mean, I Bob, Bob comes in and butters his toast in the morning. And I just punch him. You're okay. See, because I had a very funny experience where the, the day after I saw Phantom Thirst for the first time, my wife, who I adore, who's a, a wonderful person who doesn't listen to this podcast, um, <laughs> she like she was just home like on a sick day or she, she was or whatever. She was home and I was working and I work. My desk is right by the kitchen and I just she was back behind me like preparing food and I couldn't concentrate and it was just like here I am locked I am I am the tyrant now <laughs> being irritated by the, but, all but, these noises but, but me. that is a reaction that you have born of a relationship that spans a while a, a very long time and a, a deep understanding that these two characters Woodcock and Alma don't have at this point in the movie no but I mean in terms of just that when you're in the process of creating something that everyone has their kind of like little yeah. zone and if that's disrupted in some way say by the spreading of butter or jam on <laughs> toast be a bit, a bit of a problem the, I just have to give a shout out to the Foley in mm-hmm. Phantom Thread. <laughs> the Foley of that breakfast is amazing. The the way that the butter, the, not just the buttering, but the, the scraping of the burned bits of the toast. Like I've heard gunshots in movies that didn't seem that loud. And there are other places where, where people are walking around the House of Woodcock where the, the Foley is similarly cranked up to just ear splitting levels of, uh-huh. oh my goodness, could you possibly walk louder, you mm-hmm. horrible person? God, the, the, it's like the hardest floors in London in that, in that <laughs> like it just, it makes the house just seem so much more sterile yes sterile (laughs) or no that's imposing and haunted in a way i mean this the house of woodcock is i think you could say it's haunted in a way by woodcock's own sort of obsession artistic obsession and fear about the continuation of his legacy and like all these things that sort of drive his pettiness slash petulance you know and i think you know since we're talking about character analogs and we kind of touch on this already there is a definite analog between the houses the houses as characters Mm -hmm. in these films and i think it's interesting that in rebecca manderley is like part of a remnant of british aristocracy where like houses are tied to a, a family name and people are defined by their homes to a certain extent and i think in anderson is really smart in extrapolating that tradition to a house that is a working home basically it is where he makes his art it's where his craft is created you know and so it has that deep connection to the character as a person beyond just where they live and you get in both places from the people who work within them that just almost military mm-hmm. rigor of just a of quiet understanding of what everyone's roles are they're all sort of marching in unison even when they have a massive emergency like this dress that they've that's been ruined that has to be ready by the next morning there is a quiet just assemblage that ha- happens where everyone knows what they're supposed to do and all that speaks to in this case Reynolds and into Cyril as well I guess uh, who, who built this house and this business in a very specific way to function in a specific way and it functions extremely well it just can be also op- oppressive and intimidating to strangers who, who enter it and either don't know or don't abide by the 
you know, tacit rules that are in place. Speaking of those strangers, to talk a little more about Fontaine's character and, and Alma and the parallels between them, I think it's very interesting that Fontaine comes in into the house awkward and shy and not asserting herself at all. And so much of the film is building up to that moment where she claims the the family name. She claims her right and her role and her privilege as his wife. Alma keeps pushing back just constantly from the very beginning from that, the business with the staring contest. She goes along with Reynolds over and over and presents herself as like a very passive woman who lets him have his way. There's a knowingness about her from the start that I think is very interesting. That whole sequence at the beginning where he takes her back to his place and starts measuring her for a dress. And she so clearly thinks that this is foreplay Mm -hmm. until Cyril shows up and changes the dynamic of what's going on. Oh my gosh! That, that uh, I mean, write we could, it and writing her name with a mm-hmm. line—that's so good. We could just we could spend an hour talking about that sequence alone and the tensions that go between them. But when he takes her into the house, she keeps pushing back on things like not liking the fabric of the dress that she's in, and it makes him really angry because she asserts herself: "I don't like this fabric. Mm-hmm. I like my own taste." I don't mind getting in trouble. Maybe I'm trying to get in trouble. And it happens over and over and over that she pushes back in little ways. And the difference between that, that long ramp up to the one big pushback versus just the the constant little reminders that Alma has like a personality of her own is fascinating. But then when she does finally fully assert herself, it's in the exact same way by claiming his name. It comes in the form of the doctor identifying her as Mrs. Woodcock when they're not actually married. Yeah, that's true. But you can see on her face her sort of decision to, oh, okay, I'm going to claim that. I'm not going to correct that. And so in in both cases, they take the name, they take the identity, they take the power. It just comes – it's a series of small steps for Alma. It's one huge hurdle for Fontaine's character. One of the things that was so exciting for me with this pairing, because we've done so many different types of pairings on this show. We've done films that were influential to a certain new film, or we've done a new film by a director or an an older film by a director. We've done remakes of certain movies. But this was one where I feel like there's such a sophisticated and specific conversation or relationship that is happening between two movies that Paul Thomas Anderson has repurposed Rebecca for his own ends. And he's managed to find some sort of place where he is borrowing characters and ideas so specifically from the Hitchcock movie, but then making it also such a personal story about an artist such as himself and you know a a partner such as his wife uh who is maya rudolph and it all kind of comes together as this unique personal thing that is born out of a very specific work which is great which is which is kind of make this pairing particularly exciting and of course as i mentioned earlier that revelation that i had seeing phantom thread a second time and in, in, in understanding that 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 film had its rebecca as well and in how that is kind of where the emotion of the film is i would, I would say also that the level of difficulty here is pretty tough to do the sort of direct homage while still making it your own movie i, I don't know that too many other directors could pull that off or or, or maybe we should give credit 
similar to Rebecca here because it's such a rich text. It's it's so influential. You know, you can see its influence uh, many different places. But to do your own thing with it, you know, I I think I think it does help when you have a movie like that. But it's still a pretty daring move. Well, I mean, just to have a, a lead character who is who is basically a Paul Thomas Anderson type because he's a total genius. <laughs> who creates these garments that everybody wants and is pretty much the best at what he does, that takes a certain amount of confidence, sure, too. Sure, sure. He doesn't have a lot of time for, you know, trends or... Chic. Things, yeah, yeah. Things that are chic. yeah. He's chasing his own muse. He's not, yeah. he's not queuing up for a Marvel movie. Or he's, you know, sitting still with his muse because he believes that he's found her and he doesn't need to pursue, you know, that that's, that's for other houses. Like, he, he knows what he does and he's angry at the world for having moved on. Hmm. What's interesting, I think you're exactly right, Scott, and I think what interests me most about the dialogue that these films are having is the sense that you can see all of these one-to-one correspondences, but that they're so remixed. You know, it's hmm. a remix rather than a remake. And so you have all of these elements that you see coming through very, very specific analogs. And we talked about the characters, but one of the ones that strikes me most is how the two movies are framed, how Rebecca begins with this like long description of a dream of coming back to Manderley, which sets the whole thing up as a gothic novel. And again, it reminds me of The Haunting of Hill House. It's very specifically this framework that explains what you're about to see and how you're supposed to feel about the relationship that they had with the house and the relationship that they have with the past. You get that in Phantom Thread in the form of the interview that she's having at the beginning with, I believe it's the, the doctor. doctor yeah. I, mm-hmm. I keep watching it and keep being uncertain. Yeah. Well, it's, under, it's, it's, it's not revealed until later in the film, but yeah, it is the doctor. He's just, he's such a generic person, like a, both a generic looking person and a generic person within the structure. <laughs> the, of the, only, the only other male character of any consequence in the film. But the idea there is is so similar. You know, it's it's telling you at the very outset, this is a story that's being told. This is how you should feel about this relationship. This is me looking back on the past and setting it up for you. They serve such similar functions. And yet in execution, they're so different. In style, they're so different. And nothing of what Alma says about the relationship directly relates to what Fontaine's character says about Manderley. It's just it's so interesting to me that you can see where one would come out of the other, but it's still so distinctive and so much its own thing. And that that seems to extend throughout both movies, just the way they're they're put together. In terms of the remix, not a remake uh, idea, you know, I think we're just going to kind of glance real briefly off some of the other connections between these films without going deep into them. And one small place where I saw that was in both films treatment of food and eating. <laughs> and, you know, there's there's a lot of discussion of, of eating in both of these films. And in Rebecca, it mostly comes in the form of Maxim telling his wife to eat or her being told to eat or like meals are often I think in that film uses a depiction of his control over her to a certain extent. And eat your eggs like a good girl. Exactly. And where in Phantom Thread, it's more Alma who is using, you know, food and eating to exert control onto Reynolds. So it's, again, they're not one-to-one corollaries, but they're both kind of playing with these themes around eating and food that are complementary. Yeah, obviously his breakfast order is such a critical yeah. part of the movie. And that's one of those scenes that we talked about that has to work. 
in order for the entire rest of the movie to work. That we have to believe this 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 breakfast order, and then the exchange that they have, the fact that that very odd and yet sweet gesture that he makes, where he <laughs> keeps the order uh, Will that she's written. you remember this? Because yeah. I'm taking it now. Yeah, I know. What a, like it's like this souvenir of their exchange. Such an unusual. It's an unusual play. It's like. <laughs> What is that? What is that line from uh, Dodgeball about Cotton? What does he say? It's like, you know, yeah, it, it's a bold stra- It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. <laughs> Come on, people. This is a, this is knowing your memes for God's sake. Um, so <laughs> I'm not sure that a dodgeball I, quote ri- rises to the level of a meme exactly. You that, cracked it wide open. That, that's Pollock. specifically. Come on, <laughs> the, I, the listener is going to back me up on this one. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. In any case, uh, uh, it does pay off as we as we know. And and then you know, and then at the end of the movie, it's all all about um, the mushroom and the in the omelet and him accepting it. And so, so food certainly plays a really important part in this movie and and in in rebecca it can be quite estranging i mean one of my favorite scenes in that movie is when she has a meal at mm-hmm. the table that's been laid out for her she doesn't with even the, know what individual in... chafing dishes like <laughs> right. uh, i want a life where i have like my own spread of chafing dishes laid out for but she doesn't know she me. doesn't know what's in them and whether yeah. and wh- how that whether they're supposed to be poured over something yeah and i mean it's it's worth noting that her order uh when they have breakfast together which they also bond over breakfast Mm -hmm. so there's a direct one-to-one correlation for you Mm -hmm. but um like her order because you get a shot of the menu you see what's on this menu and it's a pretty frou-frou yeah it's it's, it's a pretty yes it's a pretty elaborate menu and she orders scrambled eggs yeah it would be more like (laughs) basic than that yeah you know it occurs to me that uh reynolds original order at her restaurant like it it surprises me because it surprised me the first time i saw it because it just feels like it goes on and on and Mm -hmm. on oh yeah he's such a thin man and we i mean we get that shot of him dressing he's just he's a narrow dude who looks like he lives on coffee and cigarettes and then he's he's ordering food and food and food and food and to the point where she leaves him a note that says for the hungry boy mm-hmm. like that's how she introduces herself but it feels like that sequence is the equivalent of the honeymoon videos we never see him have that relationship with food again we see him take like a single disdainful bite of asparagus mm-hmm. or a single angry bite of a sweet roll we see him rejecting food we see him drinking tea he never seems to care about that about food in the same way and he never gives himself back into that sensuality Mm -hmm. of sitting down to a huge buffet and it's the same thing as the honeymoon where we never again see that level of affection that level of a relationship it's like the two of them at that restaurant where he orders the entire menu are having a moment in their relationship that's just never going to be repeated yeah with Reynolds I get the sense that driving up to the country and having breakfast by himself, it's a rare moment where he lets himself do what he wants. He's off schedule and he's on vacation. And he's, so he's restorative. He's, uh, yeah, exactly. Anything could happen. He could have a big breakfast, not just a little breakfast. And, uh, you know, I think when you, when you live your life as rigidly as he does, that's these tiny breaks from that make a big deal. And, and I think, you know, so much of the movie is, is, you know, making breaks matter, making, making them more significant. 
You know, the another parallel that just struck me really strongly rewatching Phantom Thread is the the cars tearing around in these tiny little two seaters mm-hmm. and the act of driving as an act of control. And I don't have like a, a, a huge observation here. I think both movies are just very interested in the intimacy of two people in a car alone together and particularly in the act of control of a man driving a woman somewhere. I feel like there is a repeated act in both of these movies of a woman getting into a car with a man and ceding control to him for a, a time period. And Reynolds drives like a crazy man, mm-hmm. whereas <laughs> Maxim drives like a cavalier rich man who knows that you know he, he has this expensive car and he can go anywhere he likes. They both very much express their characters through the cars they own and how they drive. And the women in their lives very much express their characters by going along with it. There's a difference, though, I think, in terms of the women and their reaction to the driving. Oh, yeah. Because uh, I think there's a, a there's a degree of exhilaration and pleasure that Alma gets from driving with Mr. Woodcock that is not akin to what I think the most important scene is in terms of the most important driving scene in Rebecca, which is that her getting rained on and him not giving a crap about it, basically. She's uncomfortable with the convertible, and she and when it starts raining, he just you know offers her a coat to throw over her head, and and uh, it's sort of a symbol of his callousness rather than his sense of the sense of adventure and, and fun and kind of like out of controlness that you get with Reynolds in his car. Although in the early days, you do see Fontaine's character very much enjoying the freedom of getting into that car and, and getting away from her controlling well, employer. That's, that's for sure. Well, we could go on and on and on, and, and, and it certainly is a pleasure to find a film that pays off the premise of our <laughs> podcast is, uh, so well as, as these two films do together. Uh, if you want to watch these movies, Rebecca, despite being one of the most historically important and artistically accomplished films of Hitchcock's career, is not currently streaming anywhere. You can find it pretty easily on Blu-ray and DVD, however, most recently via a very nice Criterion edition, which has all kinds of wonderful things on Two it. Two like, discs. Like Joan Fontaine on, on talking to Tom Snyder about the, the way things were in Hollywood. <laughs> uh, it's good stuff. Phantom Thread is currently in cinemas nationwide, including a limited run in 70 millimeter in, in some cities. Uh, check that out if you can. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it will put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I want to talk about a couple films that Phantom Thread made me think of for very different reasons. Um, the first one is a movie from 2017 called Lady Macbeth, which Keith recommended on this podcast a few months back. It's directed by William Oldroyd. But I only recently caught up with it, and it's been on my mind ever since, and more so since seeing Phantom Thread, with which it shares one very notable plot device that I won't spoil. Um, it's also a film about a woman asserting herself in an unhappy marriage, though in the case of Lady Macbeth, Beth Catherine, played in a brilliant performance by Frances Pugh, is much less ambiguous in her intentions than Alma is. This is a dark and beautiful and beautifully acted film with a lot of ideas about female sexuality and patriarchy and revenge that all sort of knot together into this unsettling but deeply resonant, for me, story. Um, I really enjoyed it. I think it makes a very interesting companion piece. 
to Phantom Thread, and you can rent it on Amazon or various streaming services now. Um, I also want to briefly recommend a very different but no less apt companion piece in the form of the 2015 documentary Your and I, directed by Frederick Cheng, which takes an in-depth, behind-the-scenes look at a transitional time for the storied House of Dior back in 2012, when it got a new creative director who's a bit of an outsider in the world of couture. That's the story that kind of gives the film its shape, but I remember it much more strongly and affectionately for its look into the nuts and bolts of couture creation, particularly its focus on the Dior Atelier, the workshops staffed by artisans tasked with making these garments reality. And sort of the third prong of its approach has to do with the ghost of Christian Dior that lingers over the house and how it affects the house's navigation of the divide between art and commerce and high fashion. Um, It's a short little documentary with lots of interesting tidbits if you're at all interested in fashion production, and it's streaming on Netflix. So Lady Macbeth and Dior and I. I really want to see Lady Macbeth. That was one of the one of the big ones from last year that I never got around to seeing, and um, I know it was a it was a Golden Brick nominee. Yeah, so I really loved it. I really uh, and uh, it's something we actually discussed doing, but it, the we we we, d- we briefly discussed pairing it with Rebecca. Did we really? That yes. was the one. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's. Uh, I guess we missed one thing and got the other thing, but uh, I, I think I think this was a little more apt pairing than <laughs> Lady Macbeth would have been. It's a it's a very different story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Scott, what about you? Uh, I wanted to recommend a movie that is also streaming on Netflix now called All These Sleepless Nights. It is a hybrid between documentary and fiction. I don't think it really cares at all to make any strong distinction between the two. Um, it's set entirely, it's set in Warsaw. It's about a couple of young dudes uh, who just go from party to party and dance hall to dance hall and op- various open open air get-togethers in the city of Warsaw. And the way I've been describing it is if the guys from A Night at the Roxbury were actually as hip as they thought they were, that's kind <laughs> of what this movie is. Um, but it, and it reminded me also of the uh, Paolo uh, Sorrentino movie, The Great Beauty. Uh, which is in that it's similarly plotless and also takes place, uh, it's also kind of about the city in which it explores and about that, the relationship between a very old city and then and then uh, this very young, vibrant culture that's sort of a decadent culture, really, that's sort of invading it, its spaces. It is an experiential movie. It is. It reminded me a little bit of... Uh, another film like Song to Song, which really disappointed me, the Terrence Malick film, and then it's just, it's really just about being in the moment and with people who are b- misbehaving a lot of the time, act- acting indulgently. Uh, there's a lot of cocaine use, a lot of sex, a lot of like partying, but also a, a certain amount of vacancy that goes along with that too. And um, I, I think it's one of those movies that you just have to kind of be swept up in. It's there's a lot of tracking shots and a lot of color and and uh, music and you just you just kind of have to feel what these characters are feeling and i think the film by michael marzak who's a first-time filmmaker uh, does a good job sort of immersing you in that uh, world so uh, if you want to be in the world of poland's equivalent to a night at the roxbury <laughs> who doesn't uh, who does it then all these sleepless nights is for you has anyone else, else seen this one? Nope. No, but I cut it. I like I cut bits of it in uh, David Ehrlich's top twenty-five of the year video. Yeah, and immediately wanted to see. Yeah, that's it. The it just thing, seems though. so imagistic. It is that. It is that. I think it's one of those movies that you're like that you could see in a montage like that and be like, "Holy crap! What is this?" It's not that good, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it is, as you say, it's an experiential thing, and, it, and, it, and I think um, it's worth sampling. I mean, if it's on Netflix, watch it for a little bit. See if you get in the into the groove and and maybe it will carry you 
the whole way as it did me. So, Keith? Well, I, I certainly have a, a, a you know sort of a marginal art house film to recommend uh, called uh, Happy Death Day, um, <laughs> which is a uh, uh, horror film that came out last fall, and I missed it. I caught up with it recently, and and uh, um, just kind of just threw it on in a whim when I had a little time, and uh, I was very pleasantly surprised. It is it is a delightful film that has a ridiculous premise that it knows is ridiculous and kind of goes all the way with it. It's it's basically uh, Groundhog Day remade as a horror film. Uh, it stars Jessica Roth as a uh, college student who keeps waking up on her birthday, and at the at some point in the day, she gets killed. And she relives the day, and at some point suspects that she'll only be able to stop living the day if she can figure out who is killing her, which leads to all manner of clever devices. And I don't know. It's very brisk. It's very. Uh, it's quite funny. I think Roth is really good. It's directed by Christopher Landon, son of Michael Landon, formerly involved in some of the um, uh, Paranormal Activity films, and uh, written by a comic book writer I don't really care for very much, named Scott Lobdell, but credit where it's due. He wrote a good movie here, or or his script led to a good movie here. I'll find it highly enjoyable, and, and, and I think kind of getting into the parts I particularly enjoyed would be would spoil the fun, but uh, if you are inclined to, if you enjoy horror films, um, with clever premises and are looking for a very fun way to pass 96 minutes this is one for you it's on blu-ray and, and it's, i believe it's streaming services now tasha how about you what have you seen lately i uh, am going to join you in uh, going directly from the high-toned movies we've been talking about to uh recommending some lurid fun trash uh this is a little movie called mom and dad that i have been looking forward to the opportunity to recommend since uh tiff at least Maybe it was sun. It was probably Sundance. This is definitely the kind of, uh, you know, tender uh, romantic movie that, that definitely plays Sundance all the time. <laughs> it's uh, the latest from a fellow named Brian Taylor, um, known as half of Neville Dean and Taylor, mm. the team behind Crank and uh, Gamer and uh, the writers of Jonah Hex, which is one of the worst movies of all time. Mom and Dad is a chaotic movie. It's a story very strangely told. It's full of flashbacks that come at really inopportune and awkward times. It's a, a story pieced together from all of these strange chunks. And tonally, it's just all over the map. It is so much fun to watch. Hmm. And in large part, that's because of Nicolas Cage and Selma Blair, who star as parents who are experiencing this strange horror movie phenomenon where suddenly all parents feel a a rabid, uncontrollable compulsion to kill their own children. And the two children in question are a teenager played by Ann Winters um, and a little boy. It becomes kind of a siege movie uh, with generation versus generation, with the kids trying to survive in various clever uh, escape room kind of ways and the parents trying to kill them. But it also becomes kind of this strangely philosophical meditation on the fact that one generation gives way to the next and that it's kind of the job of adults to have the children that will replace and reject them, that will eventually take over their lifestyles and, and change them from carefree youths into emotionally worn adults. And it's got a lot of really interesting thoughts on that, but they come via one of the most rabid, balls out, ridiculous Nicolas Cage performances we have seen in many, many years. 
I actually, uh, when I got a streaming copy of this, I threw a little party at my house and had like <laughs> 10 people and uh, some bottles of wine and just sat them down and watched them watch this movie, which was an immensely entertaining experience. It is definitely the kind of not great, but incredibly entertaining movie to watch with a bunch of friends and some booze. It's in theory in uh, a limited number of theaters. It's also simultaneously hitting VOD and digital. I really recommend uh, dialing it up on your your on-demand, getting some booze, getting some friends, and just sitting down and watching this. Mom and Dad, crazy, crazy movie. I'm on board. I think I might be on board, too. I think you may have convinced me, Tasha. It is a little on the gory side. It uh, does not have the, the kind of tension that tends to worry you in horror okay. films. It's a horror film in the sense that it's it's sloppy and bloody and obsessed with the idea of suddenly an unexpected thing happens and everyone must kill. Mm-hmm. But it's not a very scary movie, and it's it's not a very tense movie. It's wackadoo over the top yeah circling back for the genevieve counseling session that, that we need to do. <laughs> I, I think also happy death day you'd be okay with it. it's pg-13 very solidly yeah. in the pg-13 zone you guys are determined to convert me to a horror aficionado maybe this will be the year that it happens <laughs> I, can just, I can just see it now genevieve koski at home putting happy uh, death day into the old double uh, feature dvd player baby steps genevieve messy bloody baby steps <laughs> And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out February 6th and 8th. Scott, what are we discussing? Director David Wayne's new comedy, A Feudal and Stupid Gesture, premieres on Netflix on January 26th. It's about the founding and misadventures of National Lampoon, the influential magazine and comedy brand started by Doug Kenny. But in typical Wayne fashion, it isn't a straightforward biopic, but a meta-biopic, with Will Forte playing Kenny and Martin Mull playing a version of Kenny commenting on the action. On our next episode, we wanted to examine the Wayne School of offbeat ensemble comedy through his cult favorite, Wet Hot American Summer, an 80s summer camp parody that's full of odd references, surreal humor, and random silliness. We'll show you the fever, into the fire, taking you higher and higher. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Rebecca, Phantom Thread, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve? Uh, You can find my work at the culture section at Vox.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work in uh, the New York Times. Washington Post, NPR, uh, and other fine publications. I'm also the editor-in-chief of the Oscilloscope Musings blog. Tasha? I am the film and TV editor over at TheVerge.com. I occasionally write about film and TV over at TheVerge.com, including writing about mom and dad and interviewing Brian Taylor about what it was like getting that that performance out of Nicolas Cage. I'm also on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith? You can find me at uprocks.com, where I'm editor of film and television there, and occasionally write. I wrote a thing about watching The Breakfast Club as an old person. Um, (laughs) If you'd like to read that, uh, you can find me on Twitter at kfips3000. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, 
And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Stake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting Family of Podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time.